You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 5th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. Kosovo and Serbia spar over license plates and diplomatic visits. American voters go to the polls in exactly 11 months today, but is the ballot certain to be a rematch? France, the nation of diplomacy, is forced to take the rare step of shuttering its embassy in Niger. And Georgia Maloney has been telling Italy's woman to both have more children and simultaneously get back into the workplace. I'm Vincent McAvinney. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Vincent McAvinney. My guests, Guy Delaunay, Chris Chermak, Nioma Aikwe and Ed Stocker will discuss the day's big stories. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. Well, hello and welcome. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Vincent McAvinney. I'm joined today in the studio by Chris Chermak, Monocle's Washington correspondent, and Monocle Radio's newest recruit, Neoma Aikwe. A little later, Ed Stocker, Monocle's Europe editor, will also be joining us from Milan. Uh, but first, welcome to you both, this first Friday show of the year. And we've been chatting a bit uh, beforehand. And interestingly, you both have moved back to the UK in recent weeks after a couple of years abroad. How are you finding the experience? A bit of a changed country? Yes, it is. Um, it's colder than I than I remember. <laughs> um, but I mean, the good thing is that there's family here. So even though making friends has been a bit slow, at least I have, you know, the familiar family faces. Mm. So yeah. And you've been away over a decade, so a, yeah. a decade where a lot has changed in this country. Are you noticing it at all? Yes. Um, politically, things doesn't feel as stable as I remember it to be. Um, and yeah, it, it just seems very, yeah, things are a bit weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Chris, how about you? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm much fresher. So I just got back on uh, New Year's Eve, essentially. So I'm just sort of gathering opinions of, of the UK from mm-hmm. being back. And we've given will, you rain so far I was and large-scale strikes. Rain, rain is definitely the one that struck me as like this, mm-hmm. this amazing UK greeting. Parts of the UK currently flooding. Greeting, yeah. flooding, all of the rest of it, as yeah. opposed to the cold, which I'm a little more used to as a part Austrian coming from Vienna, I suppose. But yes, <laughs> that, that was definitely a notice, I would say, the rain. And otherwise... I have to admit also just that this isn't perhaps just for the UK, but house prices, rent prices are mm, kind of going through the roof, aren't they? So yeah. that's, that's been a fun And mortgage rates, to uh, interest London. rates around 6% as well, if you can <laughs> get a mortgage, you can find a property. Uh, well, we'll chat to you uh, both in a little bit. But first, we're going to check in on events in Kosovo, where license plates and blocked diplomatic visits have been stirring problems with neighbouring Serbia. Joining us now is Guy Delaunay, Monocle's Balkans correspondent in Ljubljana. Uh, Guy, can you explain this issue around license plates and why these have been causing problems between the two nations? 
I am proud to say, Vincent, that over the years we have been talking quite a bit about license plates in Kosovo on, on Monocle Radio and its predecessor, Monocle 24, its rebadged version uh, as was. Uh, you know, the license plates thing sounds absolutely ridiculous, but it was a really hot issue. So in essence, what this was all about was that ethnic Serbs living in North Kosovo wanted to use number plates which were issued by Serbia. And not just number plates that had Belgrade um, insignia on them, uh, but number plates which had insignia of towns in Kosovo on them, but were issued by Serbia. And this, you know, down to the fact that Serbia doesn't recognise Kosovo's unilateral declaration of independence, and nor do ethnic Serbs who live in North Kosovo. Uh, so this issue was rumbling on and on and on, and we saw all sorts of things happening over those years, uh, barricades being set up when attempts were made um, to force ethnic Serbs to surrender their Serbian-issued licence plates. Um, you know, things turned quite nasty on a few occasions, and eventually we had one of these wonderful fudges, um, which was that Serbia and Kosovo agreed um, that all would be fine if everybody just covered up the national insignia on their number plates uh, when they crossed over what Serbia considers the administrative line and Kosovo. So, are we talking, you know, tearing border. a bit of gaffer tape off and putting it over the license plate? Is that is that the solution? It was it was pretty gaffer tape, Vincent. It was uh, it was white gaffer tape to go with the white number plates. Uh, but yeah, in essence. A bit of the old gaffer. I mean, you know, you know how uh, gaffer fixes everything, doesn't it? Oh yeah, so, completely. Uh, yeah, it, it was it was a it was the clear solution to a sticky situation. <laughs> but it does raise an important point because Kosovo, of course, is one of only two nations in the world that actually has a geographic map of the country on its flag. The other being Cyprus, because they are borders yeah. which are in contention, aren't they? Well, you know, the, the, the flag of Kosovo, I mean, this is a bit of a digression. We can get back to the number plates in a sec, I hope, because something quite momentous has happened. But the, the flag of Kosovo, for people who don't know it, is a blue background, um, a gold map of Kosovo with six gold stars above it. And of course, this was not designed by anybody in Kosovo, whether a majority Albanian or minority Serb. It was imposed on Kosovo by the international uh, community. And the reason the map of Kosovo is on there is more or less to say these are the borders and they are inviolable and uh, the six stars are there because it's saying that Kosovo is not a uni-ethnic state uh, despite the fact that more than 90% of the population is ethnic Albanian there are six ethnic groups in uh, in Kosovo you'll get a prize if you can name them all I'm not sure I can off the top of my head <laughs> I don't head, think frankly. I'll be able to that that is one of my go-to quiz questions for people though what are the two flags that have maps on them but uh, no I won't be able to name those but I mean back- <laughs> I, I don't know if the, I don't know if Bosnia actually is the only one that has a map where the stars actually fall off the edge of the flag okay right um, okay you know it's, it looks like a bit of clip art gone wrong but uh, <laughs> but back to the another, license that, that, plates. that's another disaster in the western balkans <laughs> back to the license plates then so what will this change mean so the, the stickers have gone and so this happened first of all with with serbia on New Year's Day, they rather quietly have let it go, the whole issue of the number plates. Um, We saw, first of all, um, Serbia doing absolutely nothing when Kosovo imposed a deadline for ethnic Serbs to exchange their number plates. That deadline came and went. Thousands of ethnic Serbs did exchange their number plates for Kosovo number plates. Nothing happened. There were no protests and there wasn't a peep out of Belgrade. And then as of New Year's Day, Serbia said, well, you can now drive in Serbia with a Kosovo number plate 
without any stickers on it. That doesn't mean we're recognising Kosovo. It doesn't mean we're recognising its national insignia. It just means we're being nice about this sort of thing. Um, and the international actors, the EU and the US, um, lent a bit on Kosovo's government in Pristina, said, you better reciprocate, you know. And uh, as of today, they have. Right, okay. Uh, And turning to another contention, Kosovo is threatening to block visits by Serbian officials after Kosovo's interior minister was denied entry into Serbia. What's all this about? So, I mean, it's a case of giving with the left hand and taking with the right. Um, but again, there's, there's more than meets the eye going on here, probably. So um, Kosovo's interior minister was trying to go and see um, Albanian communities in southern Serbia, um, which is a slightly odd thing for him to want to do in the first place. Um, you know, what with it being Serbia and what on earth would Kosovo's interior minister possibly want to be doing there? Um, there is a process through under which both the uh, government ministers from Serbia and Kosovo have to ask permission to uh, travel over this this line which divides Kosovo and Serbia and um, you know Kosovo has denied entry to Serbian officials multiple times and this time around Serbia has done has done the same um, with the interior minister of Kosovo he's he's not coming in to meet these uh, ethnic Albanians and I read at least one commentary by an ethnic Albanian commentator in Kosovo who said this was very much a case of the governing party uh, Vetevan Dosia um, trying to you know build up some momentum towards elections which are going to be coming this year using the number plate issue as a bit of a springboard, actually, trying to claim this as a victory for them over Serbia and following it up with this this visit to the ethnic Albanian communities in southern Serbia. Um, Belgrade clearly thought it had given enough uh, away already and uh, nope, you're not coming in. And finally, just briefly, a newly appointed Foreign Secretary, former Prime Minister David Cameron of the United Kingdom, has been getting involved in the region. He has. He's made his first visit of the new year, and the first visit of the new year was to Kosovo, uh, where he met the president, the prime minister, his opposite number, and also uh, met the British troops who were serving with NATO's K-4 peacekeeping troop uh, force in, in Kosovo. Um, that force, of course, has been increased uh, by about, uh, let me see, 25% over the past few months because of uh, various shenanigans in Serbia and Kosovo in the past few months. Um, so Mr. Cameron was meeting those people, but also uh, reassuring the government of Kosovo that uh, Britain is a strong supporter of Kosovo's independence, wants to help it gain wider recognition. And you can imagine how well that went down in Serbia. Guy Delaunay, Monocle's Balkans correspondent, thank you very much. Well, exactly 11 months today, voters in the United States will be going to the polls in what's increasingly looking set to be a rematch between President Joe Biden and Donald Trump. The race kicks off properly with the Iowa caucuses in two weeks' time, but Trump's two strongest rivals, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, are both trailing far behind him. Trump, however, is facing several trials across the country for the 91 criminal charges he is facing. With me in the studio is Chris Chermak, Washington, uh, Monocle's Washington correspondent. Uh, Chris, Donald Trump actually lost the Iowa caucus back in 2016 to Ted Cruz. But is he expected to win again this time? It looks more like he is almost certain to win this time. Uh, if you look at the polling at the moment, for example, Real Clear Politics, which has kind of an aggregate of polls, 
puts him at 51% uh, in in Iowa. DeSantis and Haley, uh, by comparison, as you mentioned, as the two others that, that could maybe topple Donald Trump are both in the DeSantis 18, Haley around 16%, so in the high teens. It shows how much of a gap there is. Not quite as much of a gap as there is nationally, where Donald Trump is over 60% at the moment, but it nevertheless shows that, you know, with with this sort of creeping up us creeping up on us in Iowa now here almost as you say Donald Trump has an extremely clear advantage hmm. and he hasn't appeared in any of the TV debates so far it hasn't done him any damage at all has it it hasn't really done any damage if anything you could argue that it's kind of set him apart particularly because of the fact that there are so many other candidates that are vying to be the kind of anti-Trump or, if you will, just non-Trump voice uh, and and candidate in this campaign. So they've been bickering amongst each other while Donald Trump has been able to kind of appear, you know, almost presidential or like the the foregone conclusion, if you will, by not appearing in these TV debates. That's how it's shown up. The one thing I'd say that maybe has hurt him a little bit is that he also hasn't had nearly as much of a ground campaign which is very important in these early primary states, Iowa, New Hampshire. That is why you're seeing that Trump is not doing quite as well in Iowa and New Hampshire as he is nationally. New Hampshire particularly is the one to watch where maybe, just maybe, someone like Nikki Haley Mm. might be able to come in first. Because in these first-in-the-nation states, it's all about the ground game, the networks of people in small towns and cities across the states that get out the vote. Absolutely. Like, I attended these small town halls that you have. I was in New Hampshire to to watch uh, Nikki Haley do a town hall and also Vivek Ramaswamy. And yes, these are small town hall gatherings. It's something that Donald Trump just doesn't do. If he is going to do, he has done bigger rallies, things like that. But the, the small town halls are how these voters get to know the candidates, and they do take that role quite seriously. And that's why it is possible that they that these voters would say, hey, well, we've been able to see these candidates. We want to have our say as well. But more important than that, I think, is just the one possibility, if there is for another candidate to emerge, is if somebody clearly wins in Iowa and New Hampshire, or at least there's a clear second, then maybe they become that non-Trump candidate and force the others to drop out. That's when the race just might become interesting. <laughs> now, the other key plot point, though, in all of this is the court cases. As it stands, uh, Donald Trump is facing several of them across the country, as I mentioned, those dozens of charges against him. But which one do you think at the moment presents him with the most danger? Well, it depends on what you mean, if you will, by danger. There's political danger and legal danger, if you will. When it comes to the political danger, what's what's so difficult about this is we really don't know exactly when many of these trials are going to be held. And that's partly because even those where a date is set, so for example, the Washington, D.C. federal case, which is about election interference in 2020, uh, that case is set for the 2nd of March, but there is also a case before the Supreme Court right now about whether Donald Trump has immunity from that case, whether he can even be tried at all. And Jack Smith, the federal prosecutor, has tried to Uh, push the Supreme Court to act more quickly on that case. They have denied that. They say it has to go through the lower courts first before they act. All of that could push that case further beyond. So the biggest question really is which of these cases might happen before the election. Do you think that's the normal process for the court or is it because it is now such a conservative-weighted court, particularly given that uh, several of those justices came from Trump? It's hard to say. I mean, you can argue it both ways. Some would say, yes, they should have intervened and they're not. I I think more importantly, you could certainly make an argument that either way, the Supreme Court doesn't really want 
to get involved. They don't necessarily... Memories of the hanging chads back in nece- uh, Bush v. Gore. Hanging chads, but more importantly, they don't want to necessarily be the one to say Donald Trump should not be on the ballot because of what that would cause and the ire that that would cause, whether you were a conservative mm. or liberal in that sense, to have a court decide that without any other sort of court decisions or convictions. And that's where this, though, comes into it as well, because other courts, if there was a jury of Donald Trump's peers who convict him before the election of one of these crimes, you know, I did speak to some Republicans who said, well, that might move them potentially. So that's why it is Mm. key. Just to finish the other way, though, when you speak of legal peril, I think it's fair to say that the Georgia case is the one that is the biggest one because it is a state court case. It's something that he would not be able to insulate himself from as much. Georgia's also charging him with election interference along with a number of other people. That's a case that could kind of run in the background regardless of what happens on the federal level. Hmm. And one of those cases uh, is all about the January 6th insurrection. Tomorrow is the three-year anniversary of that. It does seem extraordinary. and Lots of people will remember just watching it in real time play out on the TV networks and how just remarkable it seemed. Hundreds of those uh, who stormed the building have been arrested and charged, uh, but many in the MAGA movement have settled on this being some kind of FBI false flag operation at this point. Trump, though, is promising to pardon these people, but Joe Biden is using a speech today to mark this anniversary, something he's done in the previous years. Uh, what will he say? And is this going to be a major sort of division point, the legacy of that date in the election coming up? Absolutely. I mean, I think, as you mentioned, I mean, I remember watching that day as well and sort of the shock that we had seeing those pictures. But it is, I think, quite incredible to look at how the memories of that day differ three years on as we are now. And as you say, there are these sort of competing narratives. Both sides remember that day with a certain amount of shock. But at the same time, there are those on the conservative side who have been, frankly, fed by a lot of conservative media outlets as well, who have made these suggestions that the FBI was behind it or the left Antifa was behind what happened on that day. So they remember it extremely differently. And as you say, Donald Trump has repeatedly said that he would pardon these people. By contrast, Joe Biden is going to try and sort of show that difference in what is essentially a campaign speech that he's going to be giving a little bit later today in the U.S. In his own campaign, or the White House has styled this as the opening salvo of this campaign. He is going to try and make that distinction and make clear that democracy is at stake. That is the something that he has repeated often before. But I think by comparison, perhaps to previous anniversaries where he has focused it on the day, you know, last year, for example, he held a big ceremony where he gave awards to those who police who defended the Capitol on that day. This time it is going to be much more of a clear distinction type speech setting up 2024 in the election. Mm. Uh, And just finally, there's a story today which gives us a taste of the kind of corruption we could see returning to Washington under Trump. And it's about hotel bills. Well, it's about hotel bills and everything, frankly. Democrats in the House released a big report, about 150 pages, uh, where they basically say that Donald Trump's businesses in general received over or received $78 million from foreign entities while he was president. And yes, the sort of classic example, if you will, of that, when I was, you know, in D.C., I would walk by the Trump International Hotel that was not far 
from the White House. And what was interesting is I can certainly tell you that also after Donald Trump left office, the maitre d' there quietly would say, it's, got, it's become much quieter over here at the Trump International <laughs> Hotel. So it gives you the sense of what kind of a hotbed of activity it was while he was president. Mm. And that and somewhere be... where many of the January 6th interactionists actually stayed. There were videos of them partying there after it. January 6th. And in this case, what's interesting is also diplomats. Any, any foreign individuals who wanted to curry favor with the White House would the Saudis, stay at the, the Chinese. Trump. Exactly. Yeah. And the Chinese in particular are listed in this report as the ones that sort of paid the most money. If Spending will, millions of Trump's dollars. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, Chris Chermak, Monocle's Washington correspondent, I'm sure we'll be talking to you a lot about this in uh, the next 11 months and we'll be staying up overnight, I'm sure, to see that result as well. Chris Chermak, thank you very much. To Niger now, where France has closed its embassy in the capital this week after relations between the two countries deteriorated following a military coup in the African country in July 2023. With me in the studio to discuss this is Monocle's Nioma Aikwe. Um, Nioma, France is accusing Niger of putting a blockade around the embassy, imposing travel restrictions on staff, refusing to allow diplomatic personnel to travel to the country, all in violation of the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations. Why has Niger allegedly taken these actions in recent months? I think uh, the short answer is that they just want France out. Um, Obviously, there has been a consistent breakdown in communication between the junta that has taken over from um, the democratic elected president, Mohamed Bazoum, um, and also... um, Macron had actually expressed support for Bazoum. And obviously, this hasn't gone down well with the junta currently. Um, But interestingly, I think, like you said, this is really rare because even though France has also had to pull back from Burkina Faso as well in 2023 in February and also pulled back in Mali, they haven't withdrawn their embassy presence. So this is a clear indication that things have clearly gone bad between both parties. Yeah, mm, It puts them at a real disadvantage, yes. doesn't it, going forward? Yeah. Um, it's an extremely rare measure and was decided at the same time uh, as the withdrawal of French soldiers deployed in Niger. Um, what were these soldiers doing there and what's, uh, what's going to happen now that they're no longer in the country? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. So the the problem right now is obviously um, the Sahel region is known for extreme terrorist activities. And this was one of the reasons, apart from the colonial relationship between France and Niger, this was one of the reasons for military presence in the first place to help these countries combat these issues. Um, however, it seems like was the case in Mali, where Mali had said that the French military wasn't doing enough to actually address these issues. It seems like a similar thing is playing out in in Niger, sorry, not Burkina Faso, in Niger, and therefore this has caused um, this this rift. And it's also led to, there's also been talks about calling for Russia um, to actually come in and support Niger in this in this conflict going on. So it's very interesting to, to see, um, and also sad as well for France, because they're, they've really lost a lot of their presence and influence across Africa right now, yeah. And you've preempted something I was going to yeah. say there, actually. Is there anyone who's stepping forward to fill the vacuum? But, I mean, Russia has been making huge moves across the continent. We 
We know the Wagner group, for instance, very yeah. active across. But why is it that they're now becoming the sort of backstop in lots of countries? I think allegedly they are just seen as being very strong right now um, compared to with everything going on in the US. The US seems very unstable right now. Everything going on here in the UK. So Russia is being seen as this powerful force and the Juntas want to align themselves with this, especially with the benefits that come, even though they are a bit um, questionable, but come with aligning with Russia. Less worried about international human exactly. rights and democracy. Exactly. And we know that when it comes to coups and military um, take take over. For example, in Nigeria, um, there has been five cons- successful and consecutive military coups going on there um, between 1966 and 1999. And the, these um, this, this, uh, regimes or this um, military takeovers, they are characterized with a lot of things that violate human rights. And obviously, we know Russia is well aligned with things like that as well. Mm. Um France says its embassy activities will now be conducted from Paris. They say they will continue connections with French citizens in the region and support humanitarian NGOs. But how difficult will this be for them? I I believe it's going to be very difficult because clearly communication has broken down between both parties. It will be interesting to see how they're able to mediate uh, and do that. Um, I doubt that it will be successful. Mm. I doubt, yeah. And finally, just stepping back and looking uh, across the continent, France's relations with African nations under Macron seem to have been pretty dire. Do you think that this was always inevitable given the history Or do you think that there's something that Macron himself isn't quite getting right? Um, Yes, I think that because interestingly, I think it was last year, he did say he was going to... um, readdress or reassess uh, France's relationship with Africa. Um, but unfortunately, it doesn't look like that has actually played out well. Um, and there are people who are looking at this move with Niger and Burkina Faso and Mali as a pan-African movement, which is rebuilding Africa by Africans for Africa. Um, however, my concern is that there is no clear structure in place in terms of what happens next. So now you have the juntas who are in power. You have, you know, France has pulled out. What happens next? How are you going to address the issues in terms of high level of insecurities going on? So, yeah, it will be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, definitely one to keep an eye of this year. Well, Nioma Ikwe, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, to Italy next, where Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney has held her twice-delayed due to ill health end-of-year press conference. She's made stopping migration a priority for the year ahead, telling EU partners that curbing migration from African countries has less to do with offers of charity than strong partnerships, coupled with strategic investments in those nations. Ed Stocker, Monocle's Europe correspondent, joins us now from Milan. Uh, Ed, uh, what was her press conference like? Indeed, this was, as you mentioned, just uh, her annual end of year conference. And the oddity, I guess, is the fact that this has been shunted into our New Year's hangover into early January, because, as you again mentioned, it was delayed a couple of times due to uh, end of year poor health. This was a long press conference, over three hours in which uh, she answered questions from 40 uh, journalists. She answered 40 questions, uh, and it was pretty wide-ranging in its scope. 
um, there was a lot of sort of insider stuff that would perhaps uh, appeal uh, to an Italian public, an Italian uh, journalist more than uh, an international audience. But there were several big themes. And one of them, of course, you picked up on, which is uh, the issue of migration. Obviously, uh, Giorgio Meloni is from Fratelli d'Italia, the Brothers of Italy, a far right party. And she's, you know, made migration one of her key issues since she was elected. Um, what's interesting about this is the fact that she's talking not just uh, about the boats that are coming over to Italy and other parts of Europe and, uh, you know, something that she's done a lot in the past. This is in some ways a slight shift in, in, in rhetoric. She's talking about she talked about building cooperation and serious strategic relationships as equals, uh, not as predators. The idea, idea being uh, that uh, Italy wants to be uh, very much involved in supporting African development um, and basically uh, giving uh, Africans, as she says, the right to not have to emigrate. Now, of course, if you're cynical, you'd say, well, okay, this sounds great, but maybe the main reason she wants to be doing it is the fact that she wants to stop uh, Africans arriving on the shores of Italy, uh, which they've been doing uh, in record numbers last year. This government hasn't been able to uh, uh, control those numbers. Um, What is interesting is that there'll be an Africa-Italy conference at the end of January in which these uh, details will be further expanded. And again, if you're being cynical, uh, you could argue that part of the reason is that uh, Italy wants to really shore up its energy uh, supplies. Um, You know, Maloney's been pretty... uh, Uh, much uh, vocal on this and the fact that she's been traveling to countries last year like Mozambique and the Republic of Congo. There have been agreements with Libya and Algeria. So it'll be interesting to see how that uh, develops. And the other huge theme uh, that was uh, part of this press conference was artificial intelligence. Now, don't forget that in December, the EU passed an AI act on um, trying to regulate uh, artificial intelligence within the bloc. And uh, and Maloney said during this press conference, I'm particularly worried about the impact of AI on various levels and particularly the jobs market. She wants to make this one of her big themes. Italy is now uh, has the year long presidency of the G7. So she's really targeted uh, these two issues as being key uh, things that she wants to develop um, over the next few months, there will be a meeting of leaders in June. And she mentioned the fact that she would also like to have some sort of meeting ahead of that on AI as Mm. well. Something that's attracted a lot of headlines around the world, though, are her comments uh, about women and them returning to the office, saying that if she can run the country with a seven-year-old daughter, they can return to work. How's that gone down? Well, yeah, I mean, she's been quite vocal about this, but we're yet to see... Uh, concrete measures, particularly uh, in this regard, because, you know, Italy still has a massive problem in that regard. Yes, uh, you know, she is in many ways broken this glass ceiling. She is the first female prime minister in Italy. uh, And, you know, she speaks a lot. But in terms of getting women into the workplace, that is still an area in which Italy 
uh, is really lagging behind many other countries in Europe. It has a very low numbers when you look at the number of women uh, who are uh, university educated, and that's actually uh, university education is pretty low in Italy, regardless of sex as well. And also, you have issues of many companies in Italy that are still giving temporary contracts uh, to women. So there are lots of structural changes uh, that would need to be changed um, in, in order to do that. Uh, she was being keen to point out in the press conference as well that it's not just about women workers. Obviously, that's a key thing to uh, trying to buoy the Italian economy. But, she, you know, she doesn't also want to uh, uh, abandon uh, women who are at home looking after children. Uh, the birth rate uh, is one of those issues uh, that, uh, that Maloney has made a big deal uh, as part of her leadership. Of course, uh, being a far right party, talking about family values is something that she's done for a long time. And so she has often talked about trying to increase Mm. Uh, the birth rate in Italy, but it's something uh, so far that is uh, still on her to-do list. And is she promising any action? Because thinking about this country, our experience of the first female prime minister back in the 1980s with Margaret Thatcher was that, yes, while she rose to the top in a man's world at the time, she didn't actually do very much on uh, retrospect for women and getting more women uh, into the workplace and into positions of power and authority. Is Georgia Maloney sort of promising anything tangible structurally? Uh, as I say, there's been a lot of talk so far, but we're still waiting for further details. To be fair, there's a, a lot on her to-do list. It's going to be a, a busy year for Italy, I feel, ahead, especially with this one-year presidency of the G7. Uh, but also, you know, potential clashes uh, with Europe that she'll have to deal with as well. You know, she's tried to portray herself as being a pro-European Union leader, despite the fact that there was some questioning of her commitment to the bloc prior to being uh, elected prime minister in December, for example, uh, Italy failed to ratify this uh, European stability mechanism, which is a mechanism for uh, providing funding to states uh, and banks uh, if they struggle within uh, the bloc. Italy is so far the only country that's failed to ratify it. And in this press conference, Maloney again trying to sort of spin things uh, the way she wanted them, saying that uh, she would she would hope that, that this might provide an opportunity to rethink the mechanism, even though the European Union itself has said it needs to be ratified and then it can be discussed and potentially amended. And that's kind of an interesting thing that's come out of this press conference mm. as well. And, you know, those on the left have been doing a bit of fact checking about some of the things she said, including predicting how the Italian economy is due to uh, grow this year. Uh, Maloney perhaps guilty of inflating the figure for how uh, the Italian economy could do this year, Vinny. Ed Stocker, Monocle's Europe correspondent in Milan. Thank you very much. Finally on today's show, our On This Day historical series with Andrew Muller explores the ongoing mystery of the British pilot Amy Johnson, who died 83 years ago today. Famous people die. This is sometimes a jolt, the degree depending on their age, the circumstances of their passing, the size of the place they occupied in the global or your individual consciousness. But famous people rarely simply vanish. 
It's not entirely unheard of. One thinks of Australian Prime Minister Harold Holt, claimed by choppy seas swimming off Victoria in 1967. Big band leader Glenn Miller aboard a plane which plunged into the English Channel in 1944. Union boss Jimmy Hoffa, rumoured to have been interred by enemies in locations including the end zone at Giant Stadium in New York. And by way of regrettable fanfare to this instalment of On This Day, the fabled aviator Amelia Earhart, whose Lockheed Electra disappeared somewhere over the Pacific in 1937. Then to a waiting world came news of disaster, as the plane failed to reach tiny Howland Island in mid-Pacific. But it is unusual, as it was on January 5th, 1941, when another fabled aviator, Amy Johnson, one of the most famous women on Earth, went missing off England's Kent coast. Amy Johnson was born the same year as Powered Flight, 1903. When she began taking flying lessons in 1928, there were still few pilots, still fewer female pilots, and still fewer pilots of any description who had flown solo from the United Kingdom to Australia. By May 1930, Johnson had become the first to tick all three boxes, coaxing her tiny de Havilland gypsy moth open-seater biplane from Croydon to Darwin over 19 days. Hello, everybody. I seem to have got here at last. It's been a long, long time, but here I am, and jolly glad I am to be here at last. I bring messages from the people of England to the people of Australia, and I should be very, very happy if this flight of mine can bring together people so far apart, but so near together in in uh, good feelings, fellowship and friendship and everything except mileage. <laughs> Johnson had racked up other pioneering feats since, including setting and then reclaiming the solo record for London to Cape Town, and with co-pilot Jack Humphreys, the first flight from London to Moscow in under a day, then onwards to Tokyo for a new UK to Japan record. Parades were held in her honour. Songs written... Movies made, including one starring Catherine Hepburn as a familiar-seeming female adventurer. It's lucky for me you're not the sort of girl that likes to make a man play the fool. <laughs> Perhaps I played the fool myself in choosing to live such a lonely life. Further globe-hopping was thwarted by the onset of war in 1939. The Royal Air Force was still some decades from allowing women to fly fighter planes, but Johnson and other female pilots were able to join the Air Transport Auxiliary, whose pilots delivered RAF planes within the UK. Johnson wrote a winningly waspish account of life in the ATA. Published after her death, it describes a typical day of an extremely thinly veiled ATA pilot called Miss X. Miss X puts on her Navy uniform, Flex military tunic, forage cap and overcoat, pausing just long enough before the mirror to admire her new two gold stripes. She is now a first officer and is qualified to fly a great many more types of planes than, alas, her employers will allow. This was the work Johnson was doing on this day 83 years ago. She was delivering an Airspeed Oxford, an unglamorous twin-prop training plane, to the RAF airfield at Kidlington, near Oxford. There would be no songs or films or crowds or parades or microphones or medals at the end of this trip, but it was what she enjoyed most. Well, I think it was rather pleasant flying alone. 
You see, there's certainly nobody to quarrel with or to contradict you. Nobody to say yes if you say no. Oh, I think it's good fun flying alone. Nobody really knows what went wrong. In the late 1990s, a former British soldier who served with an anti-aircraft battery during the war claimed that his unit shot Johnson down when she gave the wrong identifying signal. But the simplest explanation that fits the facts is that she lost her way in bad weather and ran out of fuel before ditching in the Thames estuary near Hearn Bay, more than 200 kilometres from where she was supposed to have landed. Sailors on the Royal Navy's HMS Hazelmere saw a parachute The ship's captain, Lieutenant Commander Walter Fletcher, dived into the freezing water but could not find the pilot. He died from hypothermia a few days later. No trace of Amy Johnson was ever found. It cannot be known what Amy Johnson's last words were, but if they are the ones recorded in the Ministry of Aircraft Production's confirmation of her disappearance, they will do. On being told that conditions along her flight path were bad, she replied, All right, I'm going over the top. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Muller. Well, that's all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. A big thanks to my panellists today, Guy Delorney, Chris Chermak, Nyoma Ikwe and Ed Stocker. Today's show was produced by Tom Webb. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nicholl. I'm Vincent McAvinney here in London. The Monocle Daily is back at the same time on Monday. Goodbye and thank you for listening. <laughs>